Hello and welcome to this inaugural episode of Fantastic Fights and Where to Find Them, a podcast about a middle-aged man trying to rediscover his youth by playing through every single fighting fantasy game book in order. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom and in this first episode I'm going to be playing my way through the very first fighting fantasy game book, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which was written by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone and first released way back in 1982 when I would have been three years old. This podcast is going to be split into two sections which will come out over multiple episodes. In the first section, I'll be playing my way through the gamebook as if for the very first time I'll be sticking doggedly to the rules and doing all the fights properly. There'll be no using fingers as temporary bookmarks and no lying about whether or not I've found certain items. If I die very early on, I might do a second run through, but we're going to play that very much by ear. The second section will be me talking, hopefully not at too much length, about all the things I liked and didn't like about the gamebook I've just played. Without further ado, I present my playthrough of The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. So, I've rolled up my character for The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. I've decided to name them Clark Ash Tom, in homage to Clark Ashton Smith, whose work I've been reading and enjoying recently. Uh, They have a skill of 10 out of a maximum of 12, which is good. Stamina of 17 out of a maximum of 24, which is not so good. And a luck of 10 out of a maximum of 12, which is good. Uh, They have 10 provisions, which can be eaten to uh, regain 4 stamina points. And they have a potion of fortune, which can be drunk to restore all of the luck and add 1 to their maximum luck. So, at last, your two-day hike is over. You unsheath your sword. Lay it on the ground and sigh with relief as you lower yourself down onto the mossy rocks to sit for a moment's rest. You stretch, rub your eyes and finally look up at Firetop Mountain. The very mountain itself looks menacing. The steep face in front of you looks to have been savaged by the claws of some gargantuan beast. Sharp, rocky crags jut out at unnatural angles. At the top of the mountain, you can see the eerie red colouring, probably some strange vegetation, which has given the mountain its name. Perhaps no one will ever know exactly what grows up there, as climbing the peak must surely be impossible. Your quest lies ahead of you. Across the clearing is a dark cave entrance. You pick up your sword, get to your feet, and consider what dangers may lie ahead of you. But with determination, you thrust the sword home into its scabbard, and approach the cave. You peer into the gloom to see dark, slimy walls with pools of water on the stone floor in front of you. The air is cold and dank. You light your lantern and step warily into the blackness. Cobwebs brush your face and you hear the scurrying of tiny feet, rats most likely. You set off into the cave. After a few yards you arrive at a junction. Will you turn west or turn east? I'm going to turn east. No particular reason, I just feel like going east today. The passageway soon comes to an end at a locked wooden door. You listen at the door but hear nothing. Will you try to charge the door down, or would you rather turn round and go back to the junction? I am going to charge the door down because I am a man of action. You charge at the door with all your strength. Roll two dice. If the number is less than your equal to your skill, you succeed. If it's greater than your skill, you rub your bruised shoulder and decide against trying again. So let's see. 
I roll a nine, which is below my skill. So that's good. So we're going to get through to the door. The door bursts open and you fall headlong into a room. But your heart jumps as you realise you are not landing on the floor, but plunging down a pit of some kind. Luckily, the pit is not particularly deep and you land in a heap less than two metres down. Lose one stamina point, climb out of the pit into the room and leave through the door heading westwards. Well, that's a not particularly good start. Still, onwards and upwards. You arrive back at the junction in the passage. You look left to see the cave entrance in the dim distance, but walk straight on. There is a right-hand turn to the north in the passage. Cautiously, you approach a sentry post on the corner, and as you look in, you can see a strange, goblin-like creature in leather armour asleep at his post. It's a rather attractive line drawing. Uh, illustrations in this book are by Ross Nicholson. Um, yeah, a very nice line drawing of an orcish warrior snoozing in an alcove. You try to tiptoe past him. Test your luck. I am lucky. He does not wake up and remains snoring loudly. Make my way onwards. To your left, on the west face of the passage, there is a rough-cut wooden door. You listen at the door and can hear a rasping sound, which may be some sort of creature snoring. Do you want to open the door, or do you want to press on? I want to open the door. I am, as has already been established, very much a man of action. The door opens to reveal a small, smelly room. In the centre of the room is a rickety wooden table, on which stands a lit candle. Underneath the table is a small wooden box. Asleep on a straw mattress in the far corner of the room is a short, stocky creature with an ugly, warty face, the same sort of creature that you found asleep at the sentry post. He must be the guard for the night watch. You may either return to the corridor and press on, or creep into the room and try and take the box without waking the creature. Well, I'm going to try and steal the box, which means testing my luck again. I have also succeeded. So he does not wake and I get the box. You leave the room and open the box in the passage. Inside you find a single piece of gold and a small mouse which must have been the creature's pet. You keep the coin and release the mouse which scurries off down the passageway. Gain two luck points. Excellent. Back to full luck and I've got one gold piece. I'm already in profit for this venture. I could just cut my losses and leave now but I'm actually going to Continue down the passage. Further up the passage, along the west wall, you see another door. You listen at it, but hear nothing. Do you want to try opening the door, or do you want to continue northwards? Well, it would be a shame to uh, mess with tradition, so I'm going to open the door. The door opens to reveal a small room with a stone floor and dirty walls. This is seeming quite familiar. There is a stale smell in the air. In the centre of the room is a makeshift wooden table, on which is standing a lit candle. Under the table is a small box. In the far corner of the room is a small mattress. You may either open the box or turn to leave the room. I guess this is the room of the guard we saw asleep earlier. So we've got two guard rooms, effectively. That's nice. I am going to open the box. I am definitely going to open the box. The box is light, but something rattles within. 
You open the lid and a small snake darts out to bite at your wrist. You must fight the snake. The snake has a skill of five and a stamina of two. So, okay, well, I've got 18 on my attack roll, which is more than the snake can actually get. So I deal two stamina points to it and I kill it with ease. The box has fallen to the ground during your fight with the snake and out of it has fallen a bronze-coloured key with the number 99 carved into it. I think this may be useful. Key 99. You may take this key with you, which I certainly will, and you leave the room adding one luck point, but my luck is already at maximum, so that doesn't apply. Onwards into the dungeon. Further up the passage on the west wall you see another similar door. You listen at the door and grimace to hear the worst singing you have ever heard in your life, and I've heard my own singing. Do you want to go into the room to investigate this hideous din, or walk on up the passageway? It's, it's working pretty well for us, this investigate everything, so I think that's what we'll do. The door opens to reveal a small room. The room is dirty and unkempt. A straw mattress lies in one corner. There's a lot of these rooms, aren't there? In the centre of the room is a wooden table on which a candle burns, lighting the room with its flickering flame. A small box rests under the table. Seated around the table are two small creatures with warty skin, dressed in leather armour. They're drinking some sort of grog, and by the way they stagger to their feet on their arrival, you assume that they are very drunk. You may either draw your sword and leap forward at them, or slam the door quickly and run on up the passage. Well, I think we are in for a fight, and I do fancy my chances against two drunk orcs. The two drunken orcs you now face are obviously startled at your entrance, and as quickly as they are able, they fumble around for their weapons. You must attack each one in turn. Their drunkenness allows you to add one point to your dice roll, and rolling to work out your attack strength during each attack round. So, the first orc has a skill of five and a stamina of four, and the second orc has a skill of five and a stamina of five. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause the recording so that we don't do the entire combat. Okay, I have killed both of the orcs with ease, it turns out. When you've got a skill of 10 and they've got an effective skill of 4, you don't take a lot of hits. So I took no damage at all during that heroic encounter with two drunk orcs. So, we move on. You wipe your bloodied sword on the mattress. The green blood leaves a slimy stain on the straw. Stepping over the bodies towards the table, you flinch at the foul stench of the creatures. You pick up the box from under the table and examine it. It is a small wooden box with crude hinges, much like the other two boxes we've already found. The name Farigo de Maggio is inscribed on a brass nameplate on its lid. If you wish to open the box, you can. If you decide to leave it behind, you turn and leave the room. So, well, we're going to open the box. That is an intriguing thing to be written on a box. I am intrigued. The box contains a small leather-bound book entitled The Making and Casting of Dragonfire. You open the pages and begin to read. Fortunately, it is written in your own language, and so was probably not understood by the orcs. Otherwise, this treasure would certainly not be as loosely guarded as it was. 
The book is written in tiny handwriting by Farigo de Maggio. In it, he tells the story of his life's work, the creation of the Dragonfire spell, with which to fight evil dragons. You read how, in his last years, Farigo finally perfected his spell, but by then was too old to make use of it. So he completed his book, locked it in a chest, and hid it in the depths of Firetop Mountain, afraid it might fall into the wrong hands. The last page reads, And so, you who now hold this book, you have my life's work in your hands. The power of destruction is yours if you wish it, but do not waste it. Unless you use the spell for the purpose for which it was intended, you shall be consumed by evil itself and die by the fire from your own hands. Remember, only when the dragon breathes its fire at you should you raise your arms and say, Ekil Erif, Ekam Erif, Erif Erif, Dimaggio. You say these words slowly and softly. Suddenly the pages seem to glow, and as this glow disappears, so too do the words on the pages of the book. You repeat the spell to yourself to memorise it and leave the room. I'm going to write that down because I have every expectation that that is going to turn out to be important. Ekil Erif, Ekam Erif, Erif Erif, Dimaggio. You eventually arrive at the end of the passage at a junction. You may turn either to the west or to the east. So we went east earlier and it didn't work out so well for us so i think we shall go west the passageway runs straight for several meters and then ends at a wooden door you listen at the door and hear angry shouting coming from within will you investigate or turn back angry shouting uh, i am going to investigate i am going to investigate it's early days for things to go too unbelievably wrong you open the door to a large room that makes a change. A large chair behind a solid-looking table suggests to you that someone or something of rank uses the room. A chest in the centre catches your eye. In the corner of the room stands a man-sized creature with a warty face, standing over a smaller creature of similar race. With the whip in his hand, the orc chieftain has been beating his servant, who is whimpering beneath him. Will you attack them both? Spring at the chieftain in the hope that his servant will aid you. Leave the room and head back for the junction. I don't trust an orc to help me, even if I am trying to rag on the orc chieftain that's beating him up, who is a nice illustration by Russ Nicholson, with a particularly malevolent look in his eye. Uh, so I am going to attack them both, which is a bit mean of me, but there we go. So... The battle commences. The orc chieftain has a skill of seven, stamina of six, and the servant has a skill of five and a stamina of three, and I can fight them one at a time. Okay, I have killed the orc chieftain and the servant with consummate ease. I think I might be getting a bit cocky at this point, but uh, yeah, they, they, they provided very little, very little fight, so I've killed them both. The green blood of the dead orcs smells foul as it seeps from their bodies. You step around the corpses and investigate the chest. It is a sturdy affair made of strong oak and iron and it is firmly locked. You may try and smash the lock with your sword or leave it alone and go through the open door. 
I will try and smash it with my sword. I was expecting to have to check my skill. The lock was obviously inadequate. It flies off and lands on the floor several metres away. You lift up the heavy lid and your eyes widen as you see the gold sheen coming from within. A fair number of gold pieces are inside. In one corner lies a small black bottle with a tight glass stopper containing a liquid of some kind. Also in the chest is a silky black glove. But as you're admiring this treasure, you hear a soft click and wince in pain as a small dart shoots forward into your stomach. Oh dear. Roll one die and subtract this number of points from your stamina to determine the effects of the poison on the dart tip. Three, taking my stamina down to 13. It's a little worrying. If you are still alive, which I am, turn to page 201. You sink to the floor. You pull the dart out and decide to bandage the wound. This gives some relief, but you still feel weak. You decide to take it easy and examine the contents of the chest, but if you wish, you may eat some provisions here. I think I will eat some provisions, because that will enable me to return to full stamina of 17. 25 gold pieces. Yeah, we're in the money. 26 total gold. And we've got a label on the bottle shows it to be a potion of invisibility. That will be handy. The glove is a mystery. You may put any or all of these in your haversack and leave the room. I will put the glove in as well. We'll call it the glove of mystery. You arrive back at the junction in the passage and walk straight on eastwards. You arrive at another junction in the passage. You may either go north or continue east. North to me always feels as though I'm going uphill. So I'm going to go north and try and press on up into the dungeon. You see a well-used door on the right-hand side of the passageway. With your ear to the keyhole, you listen and hear a man screaming for help from inside. Will you open the door or walk on? Well, I'm going to open the door. I, I, I'm not the kind of chap that uh, stands aside when people are screaming for help, or at least I'm not that kind of chap today. Who knows? I might feel different on another playthrough. The door is locked. You may try and charge it down by rolling two dice. If the number rolled is equal or less than your skill, the door bursts open. It is. The locked door bursts open. A nauseating stench hits your nostrils. Inside the room, the floor is covered with bones, rutting vegetation and slime. A wild-haired old man, clothed in rags, rushes at you, screaming. His beard is long and grey, and he is waving an old wooden chair leg. Is he simply insane, as he appears, or has this been some kind of trap? You may either shout at him to try and calm him down, or draw your sword and attack him. There's another illustration for this, which uh, is very lively. The, uh, the man caught yeah, very much mid-lunge with his broken chair leg, which I rather like. I am going to try and shout at him to calm him down, because if I know anything about people, it's that shouting at them always makes them calm and reasonable. You shout, You are freed, old man, at the top of your voice. Instantly, his ranting cease. He stops dead in his tracks and sinks to the floor, weeping loudly. As he gradually composes himself, he thanks you many times. You talk with him in the hope of discovering some of the secrets of the mountain, and he begins to tell his story. Many years ago, he was an adventurer like you in search of the warlock's treasure. 
He was captured by the orcs and thrown into his solitary cell as a sort of pet to the creature. You ask whether he would like to accompany you into the mountain, but he simply wants to leave and see the world again. You ask for his advice, but he says he knows little. He advises you to pay your respects to the boatman. He tells you that you must pull the right-hand lever on the wall ahead to open the iron gate at the end of the passage. He has also learned that the keys to the boathouse are guarded by a man and his dog. You shake hands, leave the room, and go your separate ways. Add one luck, and maximum luck. So, the right lever... And the boathouse keys are guarded. I'm writing down the right lever because that seems like it might be important later. I hope it'll be important later. Further up the passage, you can see a door in the east wall. You listen hard but can hear no sound. Do you want to open the door to investigate? I do. I do indeed. It's worked out really well for me, this, this noisiness. The door is firmly locked. You may try to force it. Or you may continue along the corridor. I think you know me by now. Listeners, I think you know that I am going to force it. So, you charge the door, hitting it squarely with your shoulder. Roll two dice. If the number rolled is equal to or less than your skill score, the door opens. Yep, eight. The door splits along its length and you can wrench the timbers apart to let yourself in. A torch hangs from one wall, lighting up a small armoury room stocked with swords, shields, helmets, daggers, breastplates and the like. You examine the weaponry and find nothing appearing superior to your own sword. However, a circular iron shield with a golden crescent at the centre catches your arm. You pick it up and feel its weight on your arm. If you wish to take this shield, and why wouldn't you... It will aid you in battles by helping to fend off wound damage inflicted by creatures on you. If, in future, during a battle in which you are using this shield, a creature wounds you, you may throw one die. If you throw a six, the creature inflicts only one point of damage instead of a normal two. If, for some reason, the creature would normally only inflict one point of damage, then a successful roll of six would mean that no damage is done. However, the shield is heavy, and you will have to leave behind one item of equipment to be able to carry it. You may now leave the room and continue up the corridor. Do you know what? I think for a one in six chance of half damage, I'm going to stick with my collection of oddities, like my potion of invisibility and my glove of mystery and my key, because I genuinely feel like they're going to be more use than a one in six chance to reduce damage by one. I may come to read that decision, we will see, but I am actually going to leave leave the uh, the shield where it is. On the east wall of the passage, you see another door, this time made of solid metal. Listening at the door, you hear the sound of tortured screams coming from within. Do you wish to try opening the door, or to ignore this room and continue up the corridor? Listeners, I think you already know that I am all over this door. The door is not locked and opens. The room in front of you seems to be a small torture chamber, with various torture devices around the walls. In the centre of the room, two small hunchbacked creatures are having their fiendish way with a dwarf, who is tied to a hook in the ceiling by the wrists. The two hunchbacks are poking and cutting him viciously with their swords. The dwarf lets out a final scream and falls silent, eyes closed. His captors make disappointed noises, and look round angrily at you 
as if it were your fault that the dwarf has collapsed. You must act quickly. Will you close the door and continue up the corridor? Draw your sword and try and fight the creatures? Stride over to the dwarf, give him a jab with your sword, and put on an evil laugh for the torturers, I think. I will not be doing that. I will be closing the door. No, I will not be doing that. I will be drawing my sword and trying to fight the creatures, because uh, dim recollection suggests that, certainly in the early books, being an absolute sod is not generally the best of ideas. And, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, let's give them a good stabbing. These two evil creatures are goblins. They attack you one at a time. They are also not up to much with a first goblin having a skill of five and a stamina of five and the second goblin having a skill of five and a stamina of six. I have killed the goblins and perhaps unsurprisingly they did me no damage whatsoever. I have I've yet to take any damage from combat in this playthrough. You cut down the dwarf. He is, as you guessed, dead. Going through the pockets of the two goblins, you find a large piece of sweet-smelling cheese. If you wish to take this with you, put it in your pack and leave the room northwards. I think I will take the cheese. I mean, I don't really want to eat cheese that's been in a goblin's pocket for God knows how long. Um, but, I mean, cheese is cheese. Cheese is cheese. So I'm going to take it. You know, it may turn out to be really useful if there's a giant cheese fiend later. We go onwards. You arrive at the end of the passage where it meets another going east to west. But an iron portcullis blocks your way and no amount of charging is going to budge it. On the wall to your right are two levers. And it seems likely that these levers have something to do with raising the portcullis. Do you wish to pull the right lever or the left lever? I should note that uh, this is illustrated, and yeah, I don't think Russ Nicholson spent a great deal of time on the illustration of the portcullis. I mean, it's fine, but it is ultimately just an illustration of a portcullis. I hope we know which one I'm going to pull, because the madman who I released and shouted into sanity told me that it was going to be the right lever, so we'll do that. You hear a deep rumbling noise, and the ground begins to shudder. Slowly and noisily, the portcullis rises into the ceiling. You may now walk to the junction. Will you turn west or east? West has been a good friend to us, as indeed has the uh, mad old man who did not steer us wrong. So I will go west. Shortly along the passage, you arrive at another junction where you may go either straight ahead or northwards. I will continue to go west, which is in this case straight ahead. The passageway continues westwards and then turns due north. Some way up, you reach a junction where a narrow passage runs off to the west. Will you continue northwards or take the west way? I'm going to carry on going west. As you walk along the corridor, you can see ahead that it is getting narrower. At one point, you stoop. And as you do so, a deep, resonating laugh starts up around you. Do you wish to continue? Hmm, that's very unnerving. But... Never let it be said that I let a big belly laugh turn me from my direction of travel. So I'm going to carry straight on. Laugh away, person I can't see. The narrow passageway eventually becomes too small for you to walk along. You get down on your hands and knees and crawl. 
Eventually, you will get no further, and there seems to be no way through, so you decide to return to the main passage. You head for the junction. Perhaps if I had some kind of item, I might have been able to get through that. But uh, Instead, I arrive back at the junction and turn north. Several metres up the passageway, you arrive at a junction, where you may turn east or west. Set in the rock on a north wall is a small recess, where you may rest to eat provisions without being seen. Uh, I'm fine, thank you. I'm still full for my last meal. Afterwards, you can either go east or west. I still feel like west is the way to go. You walk westwards along the passageway. After 50 metres or so, the way turns northwards. Two or three paces up the passage, you hear a crumbling beneath your feet and try and leap back as the ground gives way. Test your luck! I am lucky. You manage to leap quickly backwards before a pit opens. Okay, good. Uh, If you were lucky, which I was, you had better return to the junction. I shall. I'm starting to feel like my always go west is, uh, is, is turning out not to be the genius plan I initially thought it was. You reach the junction and continue eastwards. You follow the passage eastwards for several metres, then turn to the north. Shortly, you reach another junction where you may either go straight on, or you may turn right into an eastwards passage that soon turns north. Well, either way, I'm going to be going north, so I'll just go north now. The passage ends at a wooden door, trimmed in iron. Various inscriptions adorn the door, but none of them make any sense to you. You listen, but hear nothing. You may either open the door or return to the junction. I'll be opening that door, as I'm sure you had already assumed I would. The door opens into a small room, comfortably furnished with a table, several chairs and a large bookcase which covers one wall. Seated at the table is an old man with a long grey beard and squatting on the old man's shoulders is a small winged beast. This creature is no more than six centimetres tall. It has two arms and legs. Its skin is a dusty grey colour. It has tiny sharp white teeth and its wings are folded behind its back. The old man says nothing as you walk in through the door but he beckons you over to sit down at the table. He is tossing in his hands two small white objects. Will you sit down as he tells you? Leave the room, draw your sword and rush forwards. Well, I'm a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. And uh, I've done all right by old men so far, this dungeon. So uh, let's, let's, with a little trepidation, sit down. The old man does not look up from the table, but his devilish little pet eyes you suspiciously and starts chattering in a small, squeaky voice. The old man grunts and asks whether you are game for a wager. Will you accept? You may only do so if you have at least one gold piece with you. Well, I will have a little wager with the old man and the horrible familiar. So, uh, yes, we agree to wager with him. Again, with a slight sense of trepidation. The old man asks for your stake. You may bet between one and twenty gold pieces, but not more than you possess, obviously. He tosses the white dice he has been playing with to you and asks you to roll. Okay. Roll two dice, once for yourself, once for the old man. If your total is higher, you win the amount you stake. If his total is higher, you lose your stake. You may continue for as long as you have gold pieces and then leave through the door and return to the junction. Okay? So, firstly, me, I get two. I'm gambling a single gold piece this time, I should have said. I've already deducted it. The old man gets more than two. gets six. All right. That's fine. Clearly, the only way I'm going to 
get my winnings back is by betting all of the gold that I have remaining. Because he's won one. And according to probability, I must win the next one. So I'm going to wager 25 gold on the next one. So I get... I shall do the old man first. Let's see, what, see what, what, what my target is. My target is... Seven. Oh, well, that's easy. I get... Eight. Get in. So I now have 50 gold. And my luck is back to ten. My stamina and skill are all already at maximum. That's pretty cool. See, I know about maths. I know exactly how maths work. Onwards, ever onwards. You arrive back at the junction and this time take the passageway to the east. It runs for several paces eastwards and then turns north. The passageway ends in a door at which you listen but hear nothing. Trying the handle, you find that the door opens to reveal a large square room. The room is completely bare, but the floor is covered in a mosaic of tiles. Two shapes stand out on the floor, star-shaped tiles and hand-shaped tiles. A door on the opposite wall is the only way through. Will you walk across the room to the door? I don't think so. Walk across the room stepping only on the stars, or walk across the room stepping only on hands? Well, this would be an ideal point to be starting to use my fingers as bookmarks, but we already said that I wasn't going to do that. We're not ten anymore. So, uh, stars or hands? Purely on the basis that stepping on someone's hands hurts, and I don't like the thought of that, I'm going to go through stepping on the stars, because, yeah, I just don't want to be treading on someone's hands. So, with that unassailable logic, we move on. You tiptoe precariously across the room to the door in the north wall. Get in. You open the door and proceed through it. I mean, maybe it was all fine? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was all fine. That would have been quite a good double bluff, wouldn't it? Either way, I've made it. I'm happy. The passageway runs ahead northwards, and you follow this until you reach another junction. Here you may either continue northwards, or you may turn westwards. So, do we want to go north, or do we want to go west? Like, last time we went west, it ended badly, so I'm going to, I'm going to go north. It feels as though that's how you, you go deeper into the dungeon. North. The passageway ends in a solid doorway, and you are surprised to see a leather skirt tacked along the bottom of the door. You listen, but hear nothing. Another skirt tacked along the bottom of the door, eh? Intriguing. Will you enter the room or return to the junction? No, we're going to enter the room. We are room enterers. That's one thing we know about us. It's that we enter rooms. You enter a small room with a bare rocky walls. On the far wall hangs a golden key. There appears to be no way through the room. Do you want to go for the key or leave it and return to the junction? I like keys, so I'm going to go for the key. There's the uh, illustration, and um, yeah, it's it's pretty glowy, I will have to say. Uh, what I very much like is that Russ Nicholson has done the glow effect all with little round dots, lots and lots of little round dots, which uh, those of you who know your comics will know that was a technique innovated by Jack Kirby, uh, known as Kirby Crackle, so it's it's nice to see that that illuminative technique being put to good use again. So, do we get the key? Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I am having a nice time doing this. I hope you are. As you step 
into the room, the door swings shut behind you. As it closes, there is a click and a hiss. From the centre of the ceiling, a jet of gas is filling the room with an acrid vapour. You breathe and cough deeply. You look at the door and then the key. Will you return to the door and escape quickly or hold your breath and dash for the key first? I really want this key now. Yeah, I really want this key, so I'm going to hold my breath. I've got plenty of luck. You snatch the key from its hook. It has the number 125. Okay, 125. Inscribed on it, but your lungs are bursting. Roll two dice. If the number is less than equal to your skill score, you make it across the room to the door. Six. Well below. Hooray. And 36. You arrive at the door. Struggle with the lock and open the door. You burst out, closing the door behind you and take several deep breaths. You return to the junction. You arrive back at the junction and this time turn to the right. Somewhere along the passage, the corridor bends round to the north and you follow it until you reach another junction. At this junction, you see an arrow cut into the rock pointing to the north and you decide to try this direction. The passage runs northwards and ahead you can hear the splashing of an underground river. The air becomes cool and fresh. You soon reach a wider opening of a river bank, but despair as you look across to see no way through to the other side. To the east, the river flows through a cave in the rock. You may either sit, rest and eat provisions, or continue by what seems to be the only way forward, jumping in the river and swimming downstream. Well, I'm at maximum stamina, so we're jumping in that river. The current is strong and takes you swiftly downstream. You are washed along through a narrow opening and out into a large cavern. With banks on both sides, the current washes you on to the south bank. Or a, a bath, at least. You are on the south bank of an underground river facing across its black depths. There appears to be four ways of crossing. To your left, a rusted bell bears the sign, Ferry Service, Two Gold Pieces. Please ring. There is a small raft in front of you on the bank with a long stick resting beside it so you could punt across the river. A rickety old bridge crosses on the right. If you don't trust any of these, you may swim. What will you do? Now, earlier, much earlier, we were told to pay our respects to the ferryman. So I'm going to be ringing that bell so that I can do precisely that. And I am flush with cash since I won it all from the old man and his little goblin thing. The bell gives a dull clang, and after a few moments you see a withered old man climb into a small rowing boat moored on the north bank. He rows slowly across to you, moors the boat and limps towards you. This is the third old man, for those of you keeping track of old men. He asks you for three gold pieces. When you protest at the price, he mumbles some flimsy excuse about inflation. He begins to get angry at your protestations. Do you pay him the three gold pieces or threaten him? Well, I think we're going to pay because we are rich and three gold pieces, that's nothing to high rolling gamblers like us. He calms down, takes the gold and rows you across to the north bank. After mooring the boat, he ambles off down a passageway. You are on the north bank of a fast flowing river in a large underground cavern. Facing northwards, the rock face is smooth and glistening with moisture. Moss of many different hues grows on the surface. There is an eerie silence punctuated only by the splashings of the river as it flows behind you. You have three options. 
A passage runs off to the northwest. A large timber door is directly in front of you. And another passage runs along the river eastwards. I think we're taking that timber door. You know me. I love a door. Doors are my favourite. It transpires. You find yourself in a short, narrow passageway with a door ahead to the north. You try this door. The door squeaks open on rusty hinges. The room is dark, and your eyes begin to adjust themselves as you close the door behind you. You hear a shuffling in the room, but before you can react, a blow to your head knocks you senseless. Lose two stamina points. Ow. Well, that was exciting. We're now down to 15 stamina. You awake with a throbbing head and look around. The room is about eight metres square with doors to the north and south. You've been dumped in the southwest corner. Standing motionless in the centre of the room are four men. At least they appear to be men. Their skin is a, a greeny-grey colour. Their clothes are tattered and torn. And they are all staring vacantly at the ceiling. One carries a club, one a scythe, one an axe and one a pick. They are ignoring you completely. And there is a uh, rather nice, grisly-looking illustration by uh, Russ Nicholson, I want to say. Russ Nicholson, of course. It's always Russ Nicholson. They're very, very thin. Very, very thin. And at least one of them doesn't appear to be wearing any trousers. Around the room are various peasant-style weapons. Pitchforks, axe handles, pointed sticks, one or two shields, and several barrels. In the northeast corner is a human corpse, with a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. Oh yes, there is. You move your hand up to your head to feel for signs of blood, and you are relieved to find you are not bleeding. But as your hand moves, the strange creatures in the centre of their room turn their eyes down towards you. Do you try to talk to them? Jump to your feet and charge them with your sword, or scramble for an exit through the south door? They don't look chatty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off the illustration here. They do not look chatty. They're also the kind of fellows who are happy to stand around staring at the ceiling with a dead body in the same room who looks suspiciously like an adventurer. So I don't think I'm going to be talking to them. I think, am I going to fight four weirdos? Uh, oh, sounds unlikely. I think I might try and scramble for an exit through the south door. Your head hurts and you feel dizzy as you rise to your feet. The four men stir into action and move towards you in single file with their weapons ready. You grope your way down the wall for the south door, but it'll be touch and go whether you make it. Your foot slips on a loose pebble and you fall to the ground. Before you can regain your footing, the creatures are upon you. The four creatures shuffling towards you are mindless zombies. Well, there's a surprise. Their vacant eyes suggest that their actions are controlled by a will which is not their own. You are still too dizzy to think properly, but you must act quickly. The first zombie reaches you and prepares to swing his club. You must fight him. He's got a skill of seven and a stamina of six, making him uh, probably the toughest thing. No, we faced an orc chieftain who was as hard as he was. Okay, the first zombie did take a chunk out of me, but only did two points of damage, leaving me with 13. Uh, if you defeat the first zombie, which I have, uh, add two luck points and turn to face the other three. Uh, I fight each of them in turn. The first one has a skill of six and a stamina of six. The second one is identical. 
And the third has a skill of six and a stamina of five. So one with a scythe, one with a pick, one with an axe. I'm definitely going to pause the recording while I do this fight because it's going to take a little while. I successfully defeated all three of the zombies, rolling an unnecessary number of double sixes for monsters of such low challenge. Uh, I do hope these dice have got some sixes left in them for later. If you defeat all four, you may proceed. So let us proceed. The poor wretches lying dead at your feet almost look happy to be relieved of the burden of life. But as you look down at them, but as you look down at them, you sense that you are not the only one to know of their deaths. Looking around the room, you may investigate the weapons lying around, go over to the dead body in the northeast corner, or check the barrels. I'm going to have a look at the dead body, I think. Love to rummage through a corpse's pockets. You check over the body. The poor wretch was obviously caught in the same way that you were, but his weaker skull shattered under the club's blow. He wears a suit of leather armour, no better than your own, holds a wooden shield on one wrist, and clutches a steel-bladed sword in his other hands. In his pockets are eight gold pieces, and around his neck is a silver crucifix. You may take any two of these items you wish. Write them on your equipment list. Well, I'll take the gold. Got to get some dollar-dollar. Taking me up to 55 gold. And I'm definitely going to take the silver crucifix, because that's either going to be valuable or, uh, or not. Okay, so we go onwards. Hmm, intriguing. What are these mysterious items you have collected? Which have you written down first on your equipment list? The armour, the shield, the sword, the gold, or the crucifix? Yeah, the gold or the crucifix, we go with gold. You are now eight gold pieces richer. You also find another two gold pieces in his boot, hidden there for safety. Record the gold on your adventure sheet. To find the secret of the second item you've collected, turned to 221. Yeah, okay. So I did the gold and the crucifix. The crucifix is solid silver and worth four gold pieces. As I've investigated both items, I can now move on. A noise startles you, prompting you to leave the room quickly. You walk up to investigate the north door. The door opens and you find yourself in a dark crypt of some kind. The room is very large. At one end is an altar and various coffins are strewn around the room. There is a door behind you in the south wall and one also in the west wall. You can investigate the room further or if the place gives you the creeps you can leave via the west door. There's a slightly grisly, gloomy illustration which definitely gives you the idea that... Uh, the altar is certainly not a Christian altar. Uh, Russ Nicholson's drawn it with all manner of strange, mysterious, semi-geometric patterns on. So, um, I think it does give me the creeps. I don't think there's going to be anything good in there, so I'm going to go on. Breaking my usual habit of investigating everything, but I, I, I sense badness. You are now in a narrow east-west corridor. Looking westwards, you can see a crossroads ahead. You go on to the crossroads. Standing at the crossroads, you may either go north, west or south. Well, I think we need to keep going north. You are following a passageway which leads ahead to the north. After several metres, it bends sharply to the east. You continue eastwards until you eventually come to a narrow opening in the north wall. You may go through this opening or continue eastwards. Well, we're going to go through that opening. It's one thing I like. It's a narrow opening. You climb through the opening and find yourself at the top of a narrow staircase leading downwards. Cautiously, 
you descend the stairs. The narrow staircase is cut into the rock, and there are about 20 steps leading down. At the bottom of the steps, a passageway leads into a large open chamber. This chamber stinks of putrefying flesh. The smell is so bad that you are tempted to turn back. Three bodies lie in the chamber. You may either search the bodies or tiptoe quietly through the room. What will you do? Search the first body, search the second body, search the third body or tiptoe through the room. I don't really see the point of tiptoeing around the dead. Uh, So I'm going to search the first body. Five gold pieces. Yeah. We're up to 60 gold pieces. I can now search the second body. As you move over towards the second body, you accidentally kick the third corpse on the floor. Its eyes flick open and it quickly sits up and slashes at you with its long, sharp fingernails. Time to test my luck. How's my luck? It is fine. Absolutely fine. Luck down down to nine, though. Here's a, a joyously gruesome illustration of the uh, the rotting corpse sitting up suddenly and lunging out with its festering claws. I really like it. It's one of my favourite illustrations so far, I think. The creature now standing before you is a semi-decayed man. His quick eyes dart from side to side watching you. His long tongue flashes out with a hissing noise. His teeth and nails are sharp, and he doesn't seem to be afraid of your weapon. He is a ghoul. And he's comfortably the toughest thing we've faced so far with a skill of eight and stamina of seven. I have defeated the ghoul. I should have said that he has the ability to paralyse you if he scores four separate wounds during the battle. So beware. Uh, happily, he scored no wounds on me. Um, I defeated him very handily indeed, uh, which makes me feel good about myself. And I get to go onwards. The ghoul twitches and dies at your feet. You search its body and find little of interest. A couple of earrings worth one gold piece between them are in one of its pockets. If you haven't already searched the first body, you may do so, which I did, and find five gold pieces. Yep. And you may also stop here for rest and eat provisions. I think I shall. I'm going to eat one portion of provisions, taking me down to seven, I believe, and um, raising my stamina back to a maximum of 17. Now, I can either press on northwards or search the second body. I will search the second body. You search the pockets of the other body and find eight gold pieces. So it's a 69 gold pieces. A bottle of liquid and an old piece of parchment. You may take these items. I certainly will. Bottle and parchment. You can either read the parchment or test the liquid. I think I'll read the parchment first before I start testing the liquid. The off chance that it's safety instructions. The parchment is well-worn and almost illegible. It is a map of some sort headed the Maze of Zagor. You can make little sense of it, although a room to the north is marked dot 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 ger, G-E-R, and another to the east is marked sm dot 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 p dot 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 la dot dot dot. Hmm, okay, fold up the map and put it in your pocket. So we don't want to go north. No north, because that's, I think, ger is danger. I have no idea what... Uh, the east could be small people, I guess. Yeah, we'll go with small people to the east. If you've not yet tested the liquid and wish to do so, you can. I will. You swallow some of the liquid. The liquid is smooth and watery. 
and as you drink it you begin to glow. You feel euphoric and a little drunk at the same time. Your confidence grows and your weariness disappears. The bottle contains holy water, blessed by the overpriest of Kinleshmar. It has restored your stamina almost to full strength. Okay, increase your stamina to two points below your initial stamina. If your stamina was already higher than this, which it was, you are strong enough. Add points to your current skill to take the total to four to one under your initial skill. My initial skill is exactly where I am. And you may add four luck points for making such a lucky find. Uh, if you've already looked at the parchment, you may leave the room northwards. And if you've not, you may look at it or you may forget about it and go northwards anyway. Well, I've looked at it, so I am going to go north. You leave the chamber, walk down a short passage and reach a staircase going up. You climb the stairs and arrive at the top in a passageway. At the top of the stairs, the passage turns sharply to the east. As you pause to get your bearings, you hear a a creaking in the rock behind you. You spin round in time to see a heavy portcullis drop to seal off the passageway behind you. Your only way now is forward. You may either press on forward or check the walls for secret passages. I am totally going to check the walls for secret passages. You've never given me that option before. I am totally going to do that. You find no secret passages. Oh, that's a swizz. However, your explorations attract some sort of creature. And as you listen, you can hear it coming down the corridor towards you to find out what sort of creature you've come across. Hang on. Okay. I'm going to go to another bit of the book to find out what sort of creature I've come across. So I've come from... Yeah. Okay. Tell me where I can go. So this is kind of like a handy wandering monster table. Your tappings and scrapings at the rock face as you search for secret doors and passageways resound through the dungeon corridors. Various creatures roam freely through the underworld and your noises have just attracted the attention of one of the following monsters. So roll one die. Consult the table below. Find out what has come to investigate. Fight the creature as normal. Wandering monsters never carry any treasure. If you defeat this monster, return to the reference you have noted. So, um, on a one, we get a goblin, two, orc, three, gremlin, four, giant rat, five, skeleton, and six, troll. They're all trivially rubbish, I think, Um, with the exception of the troll, who's got a skill of eight and a stamina of four. So let's find out what I'm going to be fighting. I'm going to be fighting a troll. I should have said that they were all trivial. I defeat the troll very handily. Very, very handily indeed. I'm getting quite overconfident, to be honest. And now I'm in an east-west corridor. If you go east, you will turn a corner northwards to go this way. Uh, I can go this way, or I can go west. I will go east. Hope that somewhere in the east I will find the little people I've been told to expect. You are at the south end of a north-south corridor. Looking northwards, you can see a passage coming off from the east wall. Do you want to go up this passage? Check for secret passages as you walk northwards, or go south following a bend to the west? This is clever, you see. I I, I now feel like I don't want to search for secret passages. I think I want to just go down this eastern passage. It's made me doubt myself. It's made me doubt myself. You are standing at a T-junction where a passage to the east comes off a north-south corridor. So I can go south. I can go... I can check for secret passages to the south. I can go north. I can go 
check for secret passages to the north or I can go east. I think I'm going to continue plugging along east because, like that parchment told me, there was some small stuff potentially happening over here. And, you know, you are standing in the middle of an east-west corridor. To the east is a dead end, which you can investigate. To the west is a familiar junction, another passageway. Quite a short one leads off to the north and ends in a large wooden door. Now, I like doors, but I don't much care for doors that lead north out of a maze, which I think is where we are. So let's let's just try and... Let's go and investigate the dead end. Let's go and investigate this dead end. The dead end appears to have no secret passages, but you can double-check. If you don't want to double-check, go elsewhere. Now, I'm actually going to a bit where I've been before. I'm back to standing in the middle of a corridor. So I've got a dead end, uh, which I've already investigated, familiar junction, so the only way I haven't been is north, so we're going to have to go north. The door opens, and you find yourself in a small, smoke-filled room. Sitting in the room, around a wooden table, are four tiny men, each about one metre tall. All are apparently fully mature, with weathered skin and long, bushy beards. So that takes that old man count up to seven, I want to say. They are cursing, laughing and joking as they play a card game. Each one is leaning back on his tiny chair, puffing a long clay pipe. On the table are a number of copper coins and four mugs of ale. As you walk in, their merriment stops. They are on their guard, but don't appear to be too dangerous. One stands up and makes some comment about your lack of manners, not knocking before you come in. The others nod their agreement. Do you chat to them, try and befriend them, apologise, bow, leave the room? Offer to join their game or draw your sword and go for the leader. Uh, if you've already been in this room, you find it empty. Oh, that's ominous, isn't it? Well, let's try and befriend them. I am a friend to old men. You chat about various things and they seem to be eager to be friendly. They feel lonely in the dungeon with so much evil about and are happy to speak to visitors of a lawful disposition. Well, that's definitely me. They tell you, apart from robbing the dead, which I've done a fair bit of, they tell you that you are in the maze of Zagor. Yeah, no. The only way out is to go deeper into the dungeon. The way out through the maze is to leave the room right, right, left, straight, and then they get a bit vague. They're not entirely sure it's correct. So we go right, right, left, straight. You may, if you wish, eat a meal from your provisions, but you'll have to share it with them. We'll only gain half the normal stamina. No, thank you. Eventually, you thank them and leave the room. We're going to a, a familiar place. Oh, a maze. A man reading out a maze is just literally the best content that's ever been on the internet. Okay, so we are standing in the middle of an east-west corridor. East is a dead end. To the west is a familiar junction. I think we have to investigate the junction... Uh, check it again, perhaps, for, for secret doors. And we get a random encounter. Okay, so, uh, yeah, random encounter. Let's uh, see what random encounter we get this time. So, we get another troll. Hell's bells. Double troll action. Okay, I have beaten the troll, but it took a significant number of lumps out of me. Um, hitting me three times. Uh, taking my stamina down to 11, which is a little bit concerning. So we're back to the east-west corridor, which we've been in many times before. We've investigated the dead end. We've investigated the wooden door. So the only way we can go is west, back the way we came. 
I'm starting to think that the the information provided to me by the small gentleman is not not 100% accurate. Did say they weren't sure. So you are standing at a T-junction. Passage to the east comes off a north-south corridor. So we went east from there. Let's go north. You are standing at a bend in the passage where you may go either west or south. To go west, to go south, or you can check for secret passages or check for secret passages south. So check west or south for secret passages. Guess I'll check the passages to the west. No, for heaven's sake, it's another wandering monster. Okay, I have killed that wandering monster and I've learnt that there's another passage that, that I shouldn't be checking. Yeah, okay, we go west then, because I think that's the way we haven't been before. Oh, another crossroads. You are standing at a crossroads. Okay, so the west, the passageway goes on for a few metres, turns north. To the north, the passageway ends at a door. To the east, the passageway continues and eventually turns southwards. Looking south, the passage goes on as far as you can see. I'm just going to have a look at some of these and see whether any of them's unfamiliar to me. To go west, north, south, east. I might go west. I don't think I've done that one. Uh, you are standing in the corner of a bend in the passage. To the north, the passage ends in a dead end. To investigate this, goes go here. You can investigate this or go back east. So let's go. You are standing at the north end of a short north-south passage. You are at a dead end. To investigate the wall, I think that's a trap. Or you can go south. Okay, so... Um, you're standing at the corner of a bend in the passage. To the north, the passage ends in a dead end. To investigate this, we've just done that. So we have to go east. Okay, back to the crossroads. Um, have we been east here? So we go east. We are standing at a bend in the passage where you can go west or south. Okay, we'll go south. Oh no, we won't. We'll go west because I recognise the uh, south. But I recognise the west as well. So we're back at a crossroads. I think the way we haven't been is north, so we're going to go north. We can go south if we want, or we can go through the door. We're going to go through the door. I think this is novel. I really hope this is novel. This is terrible content. Absolutely terrible content. You have entered a large square room. Broken pottery lies scattered all about. One large clay vase is untouched and is full of clear liquid. Well, that sounds good. A large bowl is full of gold coins. As you enter the room, the door slams behind you and you swing round to face a strange-looking creature, half-man, half-bull, who is glaring at you. He is a minotaur and he stalks towards you. There's a lovely, lovely picture of the minotaur who looks suitably ferocious, but altogether too massive to be just lurking behind a door like a common footpad. He lowers his head, horns pointing at your chest, and charges. You must fight him. Now, he is, again, pretty handy. He's got a skill of nine and a stamina of nine. But after three attack rounds, I can try and escape if I want to. Okay, I have killed the Minotaur, but it was quite the tussle. And uh, I am down to three stamina points. Yeah, he, he, he got his lumps in, there's no question of that. So, uh, I can investigate the room, and I feel like the Minotaur's got to be the most challenging thing, surely. So, um, sort through the broken pots and find little of interest. The liquid looks, smells and tastes like water. The coins in the pot are a fraud. 
Eight genuine gold pieces lie on the surface of the pile, which I can take, and I will. I have earned those. Take me up to 77 gold pieces. But those underneath are merely painted pieces of pot. As you tip the vase, it slips and breaks. A red-coloured key appears hidden inside a false bottom in the bowl. You can take this key, and it's uh, numbered 111, which could be important later. You may rest here and eat some provisions. Oh yes, I'm going to eat some provisions. So, um, I have lost 14 hit points. So, if I eat 3 or 4 provisions, I'm going to eat 4 provisions to get myself right back up to 17. Because at this point in the adventure, things have gotten very, very real. Um, I can add luck. I'm still at maximum luck. So, let's go back to where we came from. So we go back south. I guess we continue going south. I find myself at another crossroads. Um, to be honest, it's just a question of looking to try and find which, which passages I've not been to before. Now you see, if I was sensible, like the book counselled me to at the outset, I'd have done a map. Okay, uh, the passageway now leads in a dead end, which I could, if I wanted to, search for secret passages. I'm searching for secret passages. I hear a click. You feel dizzy and slumped to the ground. When you come to, you do not recognise your surroundings. That's unhelpful. Okay. Um, however, I recognise my surroundings all too well. Okay. I stopped recording for a while because it was just getting so unbelievably repetitive. Uh, like really, really repetitive. More repetitive than this already is, and it's already really repetitive. And so I had to actually spend, I think, about half an hour exhaustively wandering around the maze until I found the way out, which I believe I've now found. So, the passageway ahead runs northwards for some time. You may rest along the passage to eat provisions. It then bends to the west and begins to get quite narrow. You reach a small rocky arch, which you will have to stoop to get through. On the other side of the arch, you pause and look around. You are in a large cavern which disappears into the distant blackness. The cavern is partially lit by natural light, which streams in through a hole in the roof. You cannot see a way through. As you shine your lantern around the cavern, you hear a rumble. A dull glow flickers in the blackness. Suddenly, a jet of fire shoots from the depths of the cavern, narrowly missing you and singeing the mossy growths on the wall. You throw yourself to the ground and look up to see a large dragon stalking out of the darkness towards you. Smoke curls from its nostrils. Its scaly red skin glistens with an oily covering. The beast is some 15 metres long. How will you attack the creature? And there is a, I would say, slightly disappointing illustration to this. I like, there's a tremendous sense of perspective to it. But the dragon kind of looks a bit bored. And maybe it is, but yeah, that's not the look I kind of want for my dragon. Anyway, I can draw my sword or search my memory for another means of attack. Well... Someone wrote down a charm, and it was me. Does the name Farigo de Magie mean anything to you? Yeah, it certainly does. If not, I must fight the dragon. If it does, turn to the right page. 
You remember DiMaggio's small leather-bound book and silently mouth the spell contained within its pages. You shout loudly at the dragon and it stops in its tracks. It cocks its head to one side and eyes you suspiciously. You fling a stone at its head and the rock bounces off its nose. The beast lets out an angry cry and breathes deeply. A roaring sound is created from deep within its throat. The dragon exhales and from between its teeth you can see another fireball building up. You prepare yourself and as the ball of flame comes from its mouth you cry, Akil Erif, Akam Erif, Erif Erif DiMaggio. The fireball continues no further. With an agonised scream, the dragon tries to shake the flames from its snout. But there, the burning continues. Squealing in agony, the dragon turns its back and leaps back into the darkness, flailing its head from side to side. Safe for the moment, you investigate the cavern and find a passageway which continues to the west. You leave the cavern along a long, narrow corridor. After several hundred metres, it ends at a large wooden door, which is slightly ajar. Carefully, you ease it open a little further and poke your head around the side to see what is in the room. You see a small old man sitting at a table, on his own, playing with a pack of cards. He looks quite a harmless old soul. Is this old man number nine? I feel like it's number nine. Grey-haired and bearded. He is seated. What will you do? Burst through the door, sword drawn to surprise the old man. Knock on the door and enter, greeting the old man courteously. Get down on all fours and try and creep into the room unnoticed. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be doing the last one. Oh, let's continue being pleasant and just knock on the door and enter. What's the worst that could happen? The old man looks at you, accepts your greetings and bids you sit down. You sit at the table and notice that he is glaring at you. His piercing stare is becoming hypnotic, but you realise this and break eye contact. He opens his mouth to speak, and to your amazement, instead of an old man's voice, the whole room resonates to the powerful voice which seems to be coming from the walls themselves. You throw a glance back to the old man and you can see him changing before your very eyes. He's of imposing height. His tattered old rags have become robes of velvet and gold. His black eyes are fixed directly on yours. He has been expecting you. The battle will call upon all of your reserves of strength and cunning. Your adversary has disappeared and now stands at the far end of the room in front of a door with two locks. How will you approach him? Grip your sword firmly and advance toward him. Look through your pack for a weapon to use. Look around the room for another means of attack or defence. Uh, let's look through our pack. This is exciting, isn't it? You rummage through your haversack. What is in there? You may attempt to use any of the following items. Potion of invisibility. Oh, we have that. The eye of the cyclops. That sounds exciting, but we don't have it. A piece of cheese. We have it, but I question its utility. Bow with silver arrow would have been nice, or a Y-shaped stick. None of those. We're going to go Potion of Invisibility. Your opponent is surprised as you disappear in front of him, but he raises his hands as if to cover his eyes and he scans the room with an intense glare. He can sense your presence, but cannot make out exactly where you are. You draw your sword and advance. 
He tilts his head and sniffs the air. That'll be the cheese. You will have to fight him from a distance, as if he gets his hands on you, your invisibility will be no advantage. But whilst you remain invisible, you have the following advantages. You can add two to your dice roll when determining your attack strength. Each successful attack will cause three points of damage. Each time he inflicts a wound on you, throw one die, and if it's odd, he wounds you as normal. Um, if it's two or four, he only does one point, and if you roll six, you can parry the blow, and he does no damage. Now, the warlock is a tough old bird. He's got skill 11, stamina 18. I'm going to run the battle now. We have defeated the warlock of Firetop Mountain, Zagor. It was, yeah, a reasonably titanic battle. We did really, really well in the early going. But at the end of the day, the invisibility potion really, really made a big difference because with 18 stamina, but doing three points of damage at a single blow, that enabled us to, to, to stab him down quite, quite nice and quickly. Uh, we were reduced to nine stamina, uh, thanks to some very, very lucky damage rolls, I, I should say, that, that the uh, thing whereby you can reduce the, the damage due to your invisibility was really, really helpful. So, with the Warlock now defeated, you know your quest is almost over. You approach the door with two locks. There are no keys lying around. You retrieve two keys from your pack and try them in the locks. They turn. You open the door and peer around. The door opens to reveal a small, dimly lit room. The walls are hung with ornate curtains, laced in silver and gold. A single flame burns in one corner, throwing light on a low table in the middle of the floor. On this table is a large chest. You step up to investigate the chest, and from all around, yet from nowhere, a mysterious sound fills the room. It sounds like a rumbling of thunder. You approach the chest and can see that it is held shut by three locks. As you approach the noise, it gets louder. Will you hack at the box with your sword to try and split it open? Search through your bags to see if you can find keys to fit. Well, I have three keys, so I am going to do precisely that. See whether those three keys are right. So, we have key 99, 125 and 111. Each key is identified with a number, yes. To determine whether you write the keys, add their three numbers together. Now turn to the section which has the same number as this total, where you'll discover whether you have used the correct keys. Two of the keys fit the locks perfectly. The other doesn't. You leap to one side as a jet of clear liquid spurts from the chest. It just misses, but you lose two stamina points as the liquid emits an acidic vapour which makes you cough and choke. You can return to the chest and try another combination of keys, but if you have no more keys, you sit down, exhausted and in despair after having got so near your goal. Remember to look for keys the next time you enter the dungeon. So near and yet so far. Yeah, very sad. Uh, wasn't killed by the final trap. That's that's comforting. So in theory, my uh, hero could rise again. And you'd like to hope that having brutally murdered the Warlock of Firetop Mountain with a sword and killed quite a lot of the other things on the way through, if he were to go back and start exploring the... Uh, the dungeon a bit more thoroughly, he would be able to find the right keys without too much difficulty. But that is a story for another day. 
He has 77 gold pieces, the richer, and he does own a silver crucifix and some cheese, as well as a single glove. So, you know, that's, that's, that's not nothing, is it? That's, that's something. Uh, he knows how to make fire. When there's a dragon about, he can sort of make fire. That's not nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly happy with that. This is the review section of the podcast where I witter on at length about my thoughts on the fighting fantasy game book I've just played through. In this case, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone with illustrations by Russ Nicholson. First things first, I had a very nice time with Warlock. There's something endlessly pleasing to me about holding an actual book in my hand, hearing the clatter of the dice and seeing the wonderful art that really brings the dungeon so vividly to life. Now, video games and adventure video games, they were already a thing when Warlock came out in 1983, like Zork came out in 1979. But in those days, you had graphics, story and gameplay, and really you could pick any two. You couldn't really have all three. There were some games like Ultima that were pushing the envelope in terms of computer RPGs. But even there, you're not going to get anything as evocative as the artwork which featured in fighting fantasy books. Another thing that's appealing about a book is that there is a completeness to it. You know there's 400 sections maximum that you're going to have to read. There's a boundary to the experience which is governed by the paper you're holding in your hand. With a video game, especially an 80s video game, there's often no clear endpoint. The whole thing just gets harder and faster over and over again until it outpaces your skill. Also, and oddly appealingly, when you think about it, a fighting fantasy game book gives you the ability to cheat very easily in all sorts of ways. Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone have gone on record as saying that they never met anyone who actually used the battle system. And I I certainly didn't when I was a lad, or if I did, I always gave myself the maximum stats, which was, of course, one easy way of cheating. The stats in the end were there to give the players a sense of scale, kind of like top trumps. So even if you were cheating furiously, there was still a shock factor in seeing something with a skill of 13 or 14, because that was higher than any possible character you could roll up. So even if you were cheating, you would think, well, how on earth am I supposed to be able to get past this beastie? And of course, there was often an item that would help you. But those monsters still had an impact, even if you were cheating. The other thing which Fighting Fantasy was trying to do, more so than any adventure game of the period, was put across a sense of what playing a game of Dungeons & Dragons was actually like. It grew organically out of an attempt to write a guide to role-playing games, and this turned into an effort to capture the experience of actually playing in a role-playing game, specifically Dungeons & Dragons. Now, I think this is both a strength and a weakness. In particular, the bestiary of Warlock of Firetop Mountain is likely to be highly familiar to those of us who spent our formative years rolling dice with friends and then arguing about the results. You've got orcs, goblins zombies, a werewolf, a minotaur, uh, some people that might be dwarves or gnomes, or some other diminutive race of beard enthusiasts as well. If playing Warlock of Firetop Mountain inspired you to go out and buy like 1980s D&D books, you're not going to find out that Jackson and Livingstone have misrepresented the hobby 
in any way. You're off down a dungeon to try and find some magical treasure. Wackiness and not a little violence ensues. If there is a weakness to this, then it's the same weakness that early D&D had. Everything ends up feeling quite generic. There's not a strong sense of place. Back when I was playing D&D regularly many years ago, I played a lot of second edition. I really loved how many specific worlds TSR created with their own distinct flavour during that time of the game. From the very first, I found D&D itself felt like a world designed by committee, drawing on lots of disparate sources and interests. And, and Warlock very much has the same feeling. There's a Minotaur in the Labyrinth in Warlock of Firetop Mountain, but it doesn't have the sense of story that the Minotaur has in Greek mythology. It's merely a recognisable baddie in a recognisable setting. Minotaurs live in mazes. That's how it works. And we know that the Orcs are bad guys, not least because they're ugly, which is a the whole other issue, but unlike in Tolkien, we don't have the context of their being made in, in mockery of elves. Now, fighting fantasy would later develop its own cosmology, which does some quite entertaining things to explain how orcs came to be, which is a, a story with a surprising amount of pathos, which I'm sure we'll get to one day. But it's not just the monsters that betray the origins of the book as a guide to role-playing games. Warlock of Firetop Mountain rewards you, in general, for behaving like a classic D&D adventurer. And it subtly provides clues that anyone who was paying attention could easily import into their own tabletop games. Your protagonist is always described as listening at a door before deciding whether to open it or not. Okay, it gets a bit tedious to read that over and over again, but... It teaches an important lesson about the basic techniques and tropes of dungeon crawling. In general, you're rewarded for showing curiosity and for being more or less consistently good aligned. So bravery, a penchant for getting into scrapes and a functional moral compass. These are three of the most important traits that a beginning role-playing character can have, particularly if you're planning on running any classic dungeon modules, which tend to assume all three. Warlock also sets up the idea that the Games Master should generally play fair and not suddenly throw challenges at the player that are best resolved by acting mean in a world where you're generally being rewarded for acting well. Now, later fighting fantasy books would not always play fair, but we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get to that. Uh, there's also a decent escalation of threat in Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which sounds simple, but... It's another thing you want to model for people entirely new to that form of entertainment. The biggest threats are all in the latter half of the book. The Minotaur, the Dragon, the Warlock himself, and two out of three of them have dodges to make the fight easier or to get out of entirely. Uh, this is another helpful piece of advice for learning the ropes as a novice adventurer. Hoard everything, especially weird stuff. I left a potentially valuable shield behind in my playthrough because I couldn't face giving up my mysterious glove, despite the fact that by any sane standard, a glove is much less useful than a shield. A shield isn't tantalising though, that's the thing, and a single glove definitely is, not as tantalising as a single shoe, surely the most intriguing piece of apparel to come across unexpectedly, but tantalising nonetheless. Ironically, the single piece of 
treasure I was most interested in was the hunk of cheese I found in a goblin's pocket. Now that feels like something that's begging to be used to get out of a sticky situation, perhaps by, you know, smearing it on your bonds to encourage rats to chew to encourage rats to chew through the ropes like in the uh, Edgar Allan Poe story The Pit and the Pendulum. As with the moral choices, Warlock of Firetop Mountain generally plays reasonably fair with items. It's not going to make you feel like an idiot for ignoring the cheese in favour of a sword, for instance. And I feel like this is another thing that later books will be somewhat less consistent about. I like the layout of the dungeon too, although more in retrospect than I actually did in my playthrough. The early sections of the dungeon have less threats and there's a strongly um, quotidian atmosphere as you patiently search your way through various guard rooms and squalid living quarters, almost all of which are described in a very similar fashion, which is repetitive but does also make sense. Then once you get beyond the various orc dens, you find yourself in some slightly more interesting areas, like torture chambers, a library, and the very important cyclops room I didn't find on my playthrough. Then there's the underwater river that provides a very welcome change from the dungeon corridors. Some more interesting sections like the crypt with the ghoul in it, which is my favourite set piece from the whole book, probably, which isn't massively surprising since I'm a big horror fan. There's there's just something great about the ghoul hiding among the body of its previous victims. And I, I like the suggestion that you're far from the only adventurer to have tried their hand at tackling the dungeon. There's a, another couple of dying or dead adventurers of one sort or another that you run across as well. And it creates the suggestion that there is a history to this place, that it exists when you're not there, which I think is also really, really important. Once you're beyond those sections, you're into the maze of Zagor, about which I have strong opinions. But we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get to that. Uh, and having made it through that, you're onto the home stretch with only the dragon and Zagor himself to face. So the dungeon has a logic to it. It's not the most rigorous logic in the world, but it is logic nonetheless. There are issues, though. You meet a bunch of dwarves in the maze, for example. It's not at all clear how they got there without dying, why they live there, and what they're doing for money. It's kind of like if you went exploring in some lost world deep in the Antarctic wilderness and came across, like, a pub, and it's got an old couple and a whippet in it. Like, there's nothing physically impossible about some lunatic building a pub in the depths of an inhospitable continent, the technology exists to provide people with a nice place to enjoy a pint of frothing ale and a pie, even in the midst of the most hostile environment on the planet. But I think you'd still be weirded out to find such a place, and even more weirded out to find out there were customers. So the dungeon in Warlock of Firetop Mountain doesn't always have the most plausible ecology, while some elements, like the dull elements, like the kitchen and the sequence of almost identical guard rooms, they make sense for any dungeon. And there's some elements that make sense if you think of the warlock as a crazy billionaire designing their own living complex. So you've got elements like the library, a room full of zombies, and a crypt that you can sort of imagine an eccentric billionaire wanting in their house. But there's still plenty of elements that are pretty odd. The ancient ferryman is an odd choice for crossing the underground river. The weird old man who's decided to set up a gambling den in a heavily guarded mountain retreat. The library, 
of a heavily guarded mountain retreat, no less. That's another odd one. Where are all the toilets? That's a key question I have for the designer of the dungeon. Is the old man in the library sharing a loo with the orcs? That doesn't sound especially hygienic, although I may be buying into anti-orc stereotypes there. But what is up with the dwarves? Are they supposed to be lost in the maze of Zagor? Are they survivors from when Zagor captured the dungeon from the original makers, who I think were dwarves? If that's the case, how long have they been there? And where did they get all that beer and tobacco from? Some of the later books, they come up with creative ways to address the artificial quality of the dungeon as a setting. Most famously, Death Trap Dungeon. But here, I think it's clearly showing an influence from the early D&D, which often tended to foreground the game side of role-playing games. What carries all of these sequences is the fact that the writing is generally pretty good. There's an evocative quality to the best bits of the prose, and the writers have really made an effort to put you into the environment. But they do so in a way that isn't intrusive. Nice and simple, as befits something aimed at children and overgrown man-children. But there's also a willingness to revel in some of the more grotesque elements and confront young readers with a few grisly images of death. It also does a good job of setting a mood without too often telling you what you're feeling. That makes it easier to project onto the protagonist and you don't end up feeling as though you're being railroaded. Jackson and Livingstone clearly had a really good grasp on the mechanics and the emotions of dungeon crawling, and for the most part, they're happy to allow the setting and the situations to do the work, trusting that the reader will respond much like any other novice D&D player. Now, in some sections, the descriptions can feel a little flat or lifeless, and I feel this is something that gets a lot better in later books, but there's a fine line between telling players too much and prose that reads like the assembly instructions for flat pack furniture. So now we come to the maze. Listener, I did not care for the maze. I did not care for the maze at all. I ended up editing the recording of the maze quite savagely because it was mostly the sound of a man doing the same thing over and over again and becoming steadily more enraged with both the maze and himself. Like I deliberately didn't do the map as I was going along for this this playthrough because that would have really slowed things down when I was recording and it would have made the recording absolute hell to edit and it's already quite rubbish to edit. There's very little fun to be had in reading section after section describing broadly featureless corridors and junctions, especially once you've been through them a few times and are proper lost. So I have quite a visual imagination, but I'm dyslexic with a very poor grasp of spatial reasoning, which means I can easily imagine what a dull corridor looks like, but I can't really grasp how the different sections fit together because I quite often get my left and right confused. Even if you try and map as you go, there's a couple of bits that will knock you unconscious and send you off to a random section of the maze, which makes the whole process of mapping just that much harder. You can get directions from the dwarves, but they are naff all use. Mazes are a massive pain in the backside, and if you're going to do them, I feel like they need to have a bunch of points of interest to mitigate all of that tedious tramping through corridors. Firetop Mountain is already full of dull corridors. It 
it didn't need them to be made into a feature, particularly not in the second half. I've no idea how I got through it as a child, but it's entirely possible I just worked my way through the entire book until I found an entry that looked like the exit. Like, I have very little patience for this sort of thing as a grown-up, and I think I had even less as a small boy. Aside from being quite dull, with only the Minotaur feeling like a proper good maze encounter, the maze also teaches some bad role-playing lessons. Like, anyone aspiring to be a dungeon master is being told that mazes are a good thing to put in a dungeon. They're not. RPG people have written a great many words about how to make mazes interesting, and they all basically boil down to abstracting the maze until it doesn't really feel like a maze anymore. People play role-playing games for all sorts of reasons, for the power fantasy, to play a character, to have fun with friends, to conquer mighty foes. Pretty much no one signed up with the hope that they would get to produce an ordnance survey map of the interior of a mountain. It also feels redundant. I mean, all fighting fantasy books are essentially mazes. Some, like Death Trap Dungeon, are completely open about this. Others, like Forest of Doom, obfuscate their corridors by covering them in trees. Making one section of your mazy story even more mazy, it's just overkill for me. But the bit that really twists my melon is that the maze gives you the option of searching for secret passages and then punishes you for doing it. This is telling you, the character, that curiosity is a bad thing, which is so antithetical to the rest of the book. In general, you're rewarded for sticking your nose in where it isn't wanted, but in the maze you get slapped down for repeatedly daring to hope that there might be something unusual in this otherwise bland and featureless corridor. It's all the more frustrating because the wandering monster table itself is a nice wrinkle to the design of the dungeon, and it could have been used to make a section feel less repetitive on a second playthrough. Here, though, it's just another painful feature of the most painful section of the book. Still, once you get through the maze, the pace really does pick up as you're ushered to the final confrontation with the dragon and then Zagor, who's disguised himself as an old man, which is actually quite clever when you realise that about 60% of the dungeon denizens are old men of one sort or another. Dragon, a little bit underwhelming for me, something that isn't helped by an uncharacteristically subdued piece of Ross Nicholson artwork. Like, you beat it by reciting some nonsense backwards poetry, and that doesn't make me feel like Conan. Zagor, when you get to him though, he's very impressive. The artwork really sells him as this potent magical threat you need to overcome. And I really like that there's a few different ways of approaching him. There's an instant kill, if you've found the right item. And there's a couple of ways, like the invisibility potion that we used on my run-through. But what I really like is that you can kill Zagor and still not have all the keys you need to open his treasure chest. So even though you've failed, you still feel like you've achieved something. And that makes going back and having another crack feel less like a chore. You already know you can take down the big bad boss, so now it's just a matter of trying to get the best ending. Now, the scavenger hunt for items needed to unlock the best ending would be a very regular feature of fighting fantasy books going forwards. Overall, I think Warlock of Firetop Mountain is great. While it's clearly a bit rough around the edges and it lacks for a truly distinctive identity, it nonetheless does a wonderful job of capturing that feeling of playing a role-playing game in ways that I don't think even the best computer adventure game has managed.
the physicality of it, the beautiful artwork, the rolling dice, they all come together to make something that's genuinely unprecedented and which still stands up as one of the best adventure game books of all time. Well, that's all for this episode. Join me again at some indeterminate point in the future when I'll be taking on book two, The Citadel of Chaos. I'd love to be able to commit to a specific schedule, but this podcast takes absolutely forever to put together and anything I tell you is likely to be a lie. If you've enjoyed this, I'd love it if you told someone because this podcast really does take forever to record and edit. I hope you've had fun. This has been Fantastic Fights and Where to Find Them, and I'll see you on our next adventure. Take care.